0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Apple podcast number ones throughout the world. Subscribe now and tell your friends.
1: I was just a little bit shaken because it was more of a row, really. And people were trying to pull him away from me and, you know, credit to him that he did say, no, it's fine. Because actually, I think he, you know, he ended up staying much longer than he was meant to. And we were probably talking for a good five, six minutes. Um, but it's quite scary when you confront someone, when you know, when you have a row with anybody, let alone one of the most famous faces in the country.
0: If I'd been asked which journalist might confront Gary Lineker face to face about his views on the Israeli Palestinian conflict and his tweets about it, I might well have said it's going to be Nicole Lampert. And so it was, as Nicole and a small handful of other journalists were invited to a broadcasting press guild lunch. To hear from Lineker about his burgeoning podcast business. The rest is politics with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. The rest is history with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. And the rest is football with his match-of-the-day chums are among the most downloaded titles in the UK market. The press all introduced themselves. And Gary admitted, I feel scared now. And he was right too. He'd retweeted a BDS demand to ban Israel from international football But he took it down later. And as you'll hear, Nicole asked him why he'd broken the BBC's social media guidelines with that. If he knew them so well, apparently he helped write them. He claimed that it was a news story, but Nicole wouldn't let it lie. She said it was a demand, and therefore it broke the rules. BBC did nothing, apparently. The usually polite and deferential event suddenly took a turn. And there was clapping at the end of Gary's presentation, but Nicole didn't join in the applause. And Gary went to look for her. Does she think she has laid a glove on Gary? Pricked his conscience? Nicole takes up the story with me. Well done for what you did.
1: Thank you. Good on him for coming to talk to me. didn't have to. So, you know, there is that. And I know what it's like to have a massive Twitter pile on. When, When I saw the event was coming up, Um, I thought okay well I I better go (laughs) and see if if I can get anything I thought I might get a single line out of him you know I did hope to kind of make him stop and think Um, but then actually and I did ask him this question in the Q&A and it was about the Israeli football team and about how they how it was a it was a retweet from the BDS organization calling for them to be banned and I did ask him because he talked just a minute earlier about how he'd helped draw up the guidelines. And I'd asked him about breaking how they were, that was breaking the BBC guidelines. And he said, no, it wasn't. And I said, yes, it was. And it was a bit of back and forth and the the person running the Q&A wasn't very happy with me. And she's like, what is your question? Because he said, it was a new story. And I said, no, it wasn't, it was a demand. And he said, no, it was a new story. No, it was a demand. And then that kind of went off because he basically kept saying it was a new story and I kept saying it was a demand. And he said, well, I wasn't breaking the guidelines because it was a new story. And then he said no one from the BBC came and talked to me, which was also astounding because so many people from the Jewish community had written to the BBC say this is outrageous.
0: Yeah, this is the thing. Uh, this was supposed to be a polite affair, um, a press guild yeah. event. Uh, The idea that uh, we can celebrate his business, though, it it seems most odd to me. Um, I mean, really, what was the pretext for this? He must have known that, uh, you know, he's not as loved as he used to be and that there's a big risk to these events for someone Hmm. like him now.
1: I don't know. Um, I think he, maybe he was, I don't know, I think he probably lives in a bubble and I think that's part of his problem, that he lives in this bubble of people that that say yes to him. And I think that's maybe why I quite surprised him. And obviously, you know, he he likes to have a go at the mail and there were two, you know, I'm a freelancer, I write a lot for the mail, but there, there were two actual mail um, colleagues that were there. And we know that he likes to give it out to the mail, but, you know, I don't uh-huh. know whether he maybe thought, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's probably just an element where, he genuinely believes he's right, and that's the thing. He doesn't believe he's breaking any guidelines because he believes he wrote the guidelines.
0: <laughs> did he write them through pressure, or did he actually physically sit in Tim Davies' offices with him and said that? Oh, look, now we can't be having that.
1: Yeah. Well, the BBC, you know, they have said that uh, it was a James Harding. He's uh, he did speak to a lot of people, and of course, the guidelines were only being rewritten because of Gary's behaviour uh, and that whole thing with the. Uh, Saying the the words about the immigration the, the laws um, that was akin to nineteen thirties Germany and the co- the fuss that had caused and him being suspended and then people from much of the day walking out. So the guidelines. Most people that work at the BBC are pretty clear on the guidelines. And and you know there is this irony that I know at least two journalists who have been reprimanded for openly having a go at Gary Lillica on Twitter. So it, goes, it doesn't go both ways. So they're not to have a go at him, but he's allowed to have a go at whoever he wants.
0: It's the progressive hierarchy, isn't it, Nicole? That's how things work in, <laughs> uh, in the modern-day BBC, it appears. Um, but let me ask you here, this was intended to be um, an event where he could present himself in a way that... Probably Lineker would have been able to have presented himself up to about five years ago. Uh, It wasn't able to be. And then you were the stummer in the crowd because at the end of the speech, apparently you didn't uh, applaud with the rest of the guy. And he came to look for you in the cloakrooms after the event and said, oh, what's what's happening? And, you know, this this big celebrity is going off for a journalist to find out, oh, don't you like me? What happened then? There's more to this.
1: It was a bit, don't you like me? You know, his podcasting industry, uh, business is very interesting. He was with, there with his the two people he'd founded it with, and probably um, two-thirds of the questions were about it. And, and it, it, you know, it is very interesting what he's done there. I, I also found it very interesting that, you know, most of his podcasts are by his friends, Alissa Campbell, Marina Hyde, and, and obviously he has too. So... I think after our back and forth, I was just stewing. I've been stewing about him for a long time, as have many people in the Jewish community, as you know. So I was just stewing and uh, and everyone applauded him. At, at one point he did say, well, not everybody likes me, not even in here, or there are some people that hate me. And, and I think he looked at me, but the person next to me said, I, I don't hate you. So I think he must've been looking in my direction.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: I mean, the way I was sitting, it was a kind of L shape. So actually... If I sat in a bit, I don't know whether he would have seen me, but maybe he was looking out for me. But he was. There were only twenty. There were about 20, there were twenty five journalists and about you know him and his execs. There were about twenty eight of us. So he may well have noticed. And certainly, I was. So I was sort of sitting at the table because I uh, ordered a drink and it had come late. So I was just finishing my drink, packing up my bags to go and write my story, which was going to be about my, just about you know what he'd said about the BBC, and. um and then he came to talk to me and, and he said, what's wrong? And I was, you know, when you have like a million things that you've been thinking in your head that you would say to someone if you oh. got to talk to them and suddenly there they are.
0: You rehearsed then, this moment for years and then it suddenly appeared.
1: It's kind of like where to start. So I said, you know, you're acting like an antisemite. You haven't tweeted about the hostages once. You know, that's what I'm thinking about. It's you're only ever one-sided. How can you possibly say that you're neutral? Uh, So that, you know, and then I said, I'm thinking about the women that are still being raped, the hostages, because I've been interviewing loads of hostage families. I've interviewed two parents of girls that are still in in Gaza. And I've, you know, I've been kind of at the forefront of kind of helping to make sure that their stories are being told. I've been really disappointed by the women's groups in this country that have ignored that whole situation. So after I said, I'm thinking about the women being raped in Gaza, he went, no. Nah. He went, I'm thinking about the dead children. And then he just went, I just want peace and kind of put his hands out like in a peace way. I was like, well, we all want peace. But I just said, you know, there was peace up until the 7th of October, there was a ceasefire. I said, well, it's more complicated than that. I'm like, yes, there is the Palestine-Israel conflict. Then there is also Iran. It's it's a really complicated situation. But Hamas started this. I said, you never write about, you know, you never tweet about what Hamas does. It's always ever one-sided. And then I said, I don't think you understand the power that you have. You have 9 million followers. There are 270,000 Jews in this country. You are so much more powerful and you never ever say anything about that, about what we're going through too.
0: That's actually what got me blocked. I said, you have a responsibility to social cohesion because he was tweeting very similar things during the last Gaza war in the spring of 2021 around the time of the megaphone gang down Finchley Road. And I asked him to kind of think about it, put a sock in it. And that is when uh, we we fell out. And it's a shame because I worked with him many, many years ago, whether he remembers that or not, I don't know. But we did a pilot show together on the BBC in the days when it was Gary and Sue and they picked up the young buck from talk radio, which was me at the time. And we did a show together. You say at the end of your article, and well done for writing it so clearly, is that you don't think he's an anti-Semite, but it's almost certain that he's an anti-Zionist. And we know those things are similar.
1: It's so hard to say whether someone's an anti-Semite. And of course, there is a kind of legal aspect I don't think he thinks he hates Jews, you know, a bit like Corbyn too. Um, You know, and he did talk about how his Jewish friends had talked to him about being upset with the antisemitism.
0: Well, that's a revelation. He's got Jewish friends. Yeah. Well, Who's stuck with him?
1: Well, Robert Preston's probably one of his mates and it was very interesting. I don't know if you saw, there was a Guardian article with Gary that he referred to a few times. Well, you know, I did say it was terrible about October 7 in the Guardian article and I kept saying, yes, but you haven't tweeted about it. You know, um, and of course that was written by Charlotte Edwards, who is Robert Peston's girlfriend. Um, and he does mention some Jewish friends in there. And he does mention the fact that some of them are unhappy with what he's been tweeting. So he does know, but I think it was interesting that he came to talk to me in different in different ways. And he wanted to shake hands at the end. And I wonder if there's just an element that he doesn't like the idea of not being liked and of actually being confronted by by someone. I'm not very powerful, but I suppose I'm a journalist, so I have um, a voice, and and of someone explaining that, even though he's, yeah, I know what it's like to get lots of hatred on social media because when so I wrote this piece first for the Jewish Chronicle and then did a version for the Daily Mail uh, when the the J C went, you know, it went a bit viral, and and then I and then Owen Jones tweeted about it. So, of course, then I got a massive pile on from people calling me Nazi and calling me this and that, sending me pictures of dead babies. Um, So I can understand maybe not, you know, maybe just wanting to mute or block things out. And I'm sure he probably gets it in in a greater degree than I do uh, because he has more followers, but substantially more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Look, you Um, gave him a guide as well. You said, you know, how can I deal with this? And you said, well, why don't you start tweeting about the hostages? I mean, that's a very, very sage piece of advice from experience and indeed from a point of decency.
1: Well, I mean, maybe the the fact that he would struggle to even do that says something, doesn't it? You know, as you say, there are these people that are pulling things down uh, because they don't want to believe it they see it as propaganda even though hamas have put out videos of them as we know and there was at, um a press conference with two of the families you know and and, and one of the families and i and i actually been to their house in, in in israel and interviewed them there um this this woman and uh, her two brothers have been held hostage one of them Hamas put out a video of three people he was one of them and said what happened to them we'll tell you in 24 hours and it was like a whole you know it was like a sick game show element to it Uh, and then the next day they showed that two of the people out of the three were dead and they showed kind of close-ups of their dead bodies so Hamas are showing this even though everyone wants to pull down these posters because they can't face it but You know, when Israel does bad stuff, I I do, it's not like I, I, you know, I do show some of it. I've written articles attacking Netanyahu's government. It's not like you have to see things in black and white. And I think that's the problem. If you only see if you see the world in quite a simplistic way of, of, uh, you know, aggressor and victim. This is one of the problems. And this is why people are pulling things down, because they're so used to seeing Israel as the aggressor that they they don't know what to do with themselves when when Israelis are the victims. But if he had any care about showing nuance or any sort of understanding that it's a complicated situation, then he could just post a hostage video.
0: Indeed. And of course, I think what uh, people outside of the Jewish community and indeed supporters of Israel don't understand that whoever was prime minister, they would do this. This isn't a Victor Orban sort of prime minister retaliating in an overtly anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab way. This is uh, the leader of a very unified country who almost to a man and woman support this campaign because they understand that it is existential.
1: Yeah, I mean, at one point, I think in some ways this was the most offensive thing that he said to me, which was, you know, I feel sorry for the Jewish people that because of Netanyahu's actions, They're getting all this anti Semitism. And and I tried to explain to him that no no one, like every leader in Israel, would be the same, whether it was the left or the right. That, as you said, Israelis are united. Um, I spent um, a few days there in December. And after all of those, all of the disunity that there'd been just a few months before, everyone, as you say, existential. And also, they're in the Middle East. You can't just play nice. Hamas have said we're going to kill you all. Hamas showed we're going to ki- how how they will do it. And then if Hamas don't do it, then the, the their big brothers who are much more frightening and of Hezbollah and people like that, then they're going to get involved. So you have to show that you'll come down tough because this is the Middle East and this is the world. This is how you know. This is how this is what war. How war works. And I said to him, look, look at the numbers. If six thousand people, the equivalent. If six thousand English people had been murdered and a thousand English people had been abducted, um, do you think we would do nothing? And that's when he said, "Well, you know, we didn't uh, start bombing Dublin, did we?" And which is something that I've certainly seen on social media, and I'm sure you have, that people are just equ- equivocating this situation, which isn't at all the, the same. You know, as I said to him, the IRA didn't weren't running Dublin. Uh, They hadn't vowed to kill all the Protestants. So it's not the same situation at all. And this is the Middle East.
0: Do you think he searched you out because now he finally realizes that beyond his bubble, there is an existential threat, talking of that term, to his career, that he is sailing close to the wind? It would be very simple for him to do a hostage moment. It might be a bit cynical given uh, the rather public row that is. Spiring a little bit out of control, I think, which you have started, which is all to your credit. But he has other ambitions beyond the BBC and he doesn't want to be too toxic. He must see now and understand that from a kind of financial point of view, that he is reviled by quite a large number of people.
1: No, I don't think so at all. Because I
0: think
1: he's surrounded by people that all think like him um so and also in terms of financially i think his business is doing is is in a very healthy state you know that's part of what we were there to talk about that his podcasts are some of the biggest in the country they're all doing very well there's only one that it sounded like that, that's not making money which is a sherlock holmes kind of vanity project which is one of his uh colleagues ideas uh but you know they're all doing really well and he's got, I think, actually, it's more a kind of smug arrogance, which we see with quite a few people at the BBC, you know, that they think they're right. They will not listen to anyone who says you are wrong. Uh, they won't listen to the argument. We, we've saw a bit with John Simpson, didn't we, with the whole uh, whether to call Hamas terrorists or not, where, you know, he was coming out with this, you know, pontificating um, excuse why you wouldn't call terrorists terrorists.
0: Do you think this is a design fault of the progressive thinking, the idea that we're trying to reach for a more perfect world and anyone who stands in the way of this vision of the perfect world, the perfect arc, is actually some kind of heretic, is completely wrong, is a racist or is uh, against the sort of ideas that we so firmly believe in? It is actually a design fault of the progressive thinker, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's it's a world that sees the world in terms of uh, victims and aggressors, and it was something that really yeah came to me. Well, it was something that was mentioned to me when I was writing about the the rapes of the Israeli women and the fact that they've been ignored by uh, women's groups here. And I spoke to a Jewish woman who works in women's groups who said was telling me how horrendous it is and the anti-Semitism that she's seen, and she said. You know, because particularly in their world of domestic violence, there is an aggressor and there is a victim, and that that's easy and it's it's not complicated. But that is their the world view, and it's 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 so simplistic, it's unbelievable, because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to pop out of your head your your head out of your door for more than a few seconds to realise that. Life is complicated. There is there's nuance, there's history, there's different personalities. There's there's so many different facets that create a war and history. And actually, you know, a lot of Gary's uh, you know best broad uh, podcasts. They're historical. They're about politics. They're so you know really he listens to his podcasts. So you would think that he would listen to to learn a bit about the complexity of the world. And that it's not a story of right and wrong always, but you know, shades of grey.
0: Nicole, this is the second time you've appeared on my podcast, Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I'm, I'm just sorry that it's about the same subject. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: it was about him, um, <laughs> about the BBC thirties Germany's jibe and how Match of the Day got taken off.
1: And of course, um, that's the irony, isn't it? That he's he you know he he wrote about the um the hate marches these are not hate marches not hate march to to march for peace there are people on these marches that are, are actually saying the same things as the nazis did in the 1930s and he's applauding that so that's why we were annoyed at that time because he, he was he was kind of ignoring the jewish elements of what the nazis had done and this is what he's doing again it's like he is blind to it and, you know, and this is something that we see on the progressive left, that Jews um, can't be victims because we are too white, we are too wealthy, we are too this, we are too powerful. And, and of course, that's all fed into by tropes that are, are so common in Western society and, and even the liberal society, perhaps even more so, that they believe these things, that we are white and powerful and, and that we are somehow immune to anti-Semitism, which you know, suddenly anti antisemitism has disappeared even. Or the worst thing that we are, it's, it's disappeared apart from among the right wing and that by calling it out on the left, we are, and weaponizing it, then we are actually crying wolf and making it harder for for those good people who want to help us to, uh, to call it out when it's real antisemitism.
0: I wanted to ask you about, you know, you said, I'm still smarting about this, I'm still upset. I'm still sort of crying mm. inside. I mean, days later, how how do you feel about it? Are you are you are you are you a bit more satisfied that you you took him on and that you may have laid a glove a gl- glove on him to make him think a bit more?
1: Yeah, and I um, I mean, what I wrote was that I was still shaking because I literally I came out of the uh, I, I came out of it, came out of the room, and I phoned my editor at the JC. Because I was, you know, I promised him that I would give them what lines came out of it. And then I said, well, you won't believe what just happened. And he was the one that actually said, I think that should be what you write about the encounter. Um, and I was I was just a little bit shaken because it was quite a, it was a, it was a I the way I've discussed it with you is a, as a discussion. But it was more of a row, really. And people were trying to pull him away from me and, you know, credit to him that he did say, no, it's fine. Because actually I think he, you know, he ended up staying much longer than he was meant to. And we were probably talking for a good five, six minutes. Um, But it's quite scary when you confront someone, when, you know, when you have a row with anybody, let alone one of the most famous faces in the country. So that's what, how I was feeling when I was writing it. Um, Now I feel I've, I've had some amazing messages from Jewish people from, I've had hundreds and hundreds and and that's been really lovely. People have said, thank you for speaking for us. I think so many people were frustrated with him. And, you know, that includes, I've had famous people messaging me too. Um, a lot of people I think wanted to say what I said to him. And although, you know, sometimes I feel like I probably could have said it in a better way, uh, because, you know, I wasn't prepared to really be having that discussion with him. Um, I, I, hopefully some of it went through. If nothing else, at least I did tell him that if you're retweeting someone with a triangle in their in their Twitter, then that means they're pro Hamas,
0: which he didn't. And at least he hasn't put one in himself now. So that's a, a bit of a sigh of relief. Yeah. Nicole, well done. And thank you very much for explaining that, because I've been going around podcasts in recent episodes to try and explain the psychology of the other side and you've done that with great gusto you're very brave i know i speak for many of our listeners and viewers on this so thank you very much for what you did and thank you very much again for joining us here on johnny gould's jewish state thank you there's a lot of competing attention for you i do know you're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in israel and back home i'm playing my part in the best way i can using my journalistic and production skills to make the case for Israel via this, Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and I've done it since 2018. If you enjoy my podcast, and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Gould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes and as always thank you for listening